A reading from 1 Timothy. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. By those who desire to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, a man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Altogether. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please remain standing. Um, and also, if you would keep your Bibles open or your, or your bulletins, uh, we're going to be really interacting with that text, so it'll be important this morning, as always. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we... Um, we want to have this singular love and affection for you, and we want to see clearly. But we confess that our hearts are um, hard-hearted. We are hard-hearted and cold and often just numb to your word. And so I pray by your spirit that you would um, give us eyes to see, to understand your word, that we would uh, be hearers and doers of your word. Um, and that we would be a blessing as your people. Beautify us, we ask, through the teaching and the preaching of your word. For we pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Ronnie. I'm a pastor here. And uh, if you were to quantify the teachings of Jesus Christ, uh, roughly 25% of his teachings were about money or the implications of wealth. So this subject is like really, really important to Jesus. It's really at the heart of most of his teachings. And if I were to represent the priorities of Jesus in my sermons, uh, that would mean that I have to give like a money sermon uh, once a month. So that's what I'm going to do once a month cold sweat. Relax, everyone. I'm not going to do that. Uh, the elders do ask that I teach on money and stewardship about once or twice a year. And so if you're a guest and you just struck gold today. Uh, but listen closely. Uh, I'm not talking about the subject because I want to guilt you into give, giving me your money. Uh, this talk is not for the sake of our church budget. Uh, this sermon is for the sake of your heart. And that's what I want you to hear from me. 
You know, Karl Marx is famous for asserting that all human actions and attitudes can be traced back to economic sources. Now, I'm not here baptizing Marxist uh, thought here, but there's something that's actually just intuitive about his logic. And even without even looking at the Bible, we know, like we know that money occupies a lot of our thinking and our motivation. We understand that it brings power and prestige and it's a way of measuring success. You know, those who uh, were walked with Jesus who originally sat under his teachings, they knew that money is powerful, that that's how the world works. And that's because well before Marx, Jesus was saying things like, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, your heart is also there. And so there's this connection between our treasure and our affections and our longings and our desires and choices. And so these sermons are hard. Uh, It's going to feel like a meddling. And it's because there's such a big gap such a big gap between what the Bible teaches and advocates and how you and I live and think. And part of me, even as I was preparing for this sermon, I kind of wanted to dial it back a little bit. Like the Bible is just too in our face about this. There's just too much distance between the ethics of the Bible and our lives. I mean, like, think about it. On one hand, we have like Adam Smith and Milton Friedman arguing that greed is expected and necessary and even helpful in a capitalistic society. We're swimming in that. In this world, maximizing our 401k, uh, those contributions, is the only thing that makes any sense. It's considered virtuous, even. And then on the other hand, the Bible is filled with all these warnings about money. It speaks against our efforts to fill this God-shaped hole in our life with money and possessions. You know, the Bible is the story of God walking among us simply and modestly. And then Jesus goes around saying, blessed are the poor. Yep, they're the blessed ones, the poor. He says, hey, if you have two coats, give one away. You don't need two. Do you see the distance? Jesus even talks about the foolishness that maximizing your 401k could be. You know, one day Jesus was walking around with his disciples and someone in the crowd shouts out to him. This is in Luke chapter 12. And he's like, teacher, tell my brother to divide our inherit- inher- the inheritance with me. And Jesus said to him, man, who made you a judge? Who made me a judge or arbiter over you? He probably didn't say it like that. He's like much more kind than I am. He probably said it kindly. But then he says to him, he says, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told him a short parable. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do for I have nowhere to store all my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I will tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I'm going to store all of my grain and goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Nice 401k. 
relax, eat, drink, be merry. Now, 21st century listeners in the United States say, that's good. Good job. That's, that's like good business. That's like, that's what you're supposed to do. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I just want us to go on this journey to be rich towards God. That's what I want. And so this kind of sets up the context of our passage today in 1 Timothy 6 that you just heard. You know, um, the author, Paul, before he was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul, and he lived a life whose goal was to dispel the myth that the Messiah of Israel had come. And he was trying to do that, namely through religiously sanctioned murder. And then one day, the resurrected Jesus like stops him and compassionately shows himself to him. And, and from that day, Saul, who's now Paul, he was never the same again. Like Paul loved Jesus. Paul dedicated the rest of his life to studying the teachings of Jesus and making Jesus known. And so Paul, he had lots of disciples. He started countless churches, all, all these churches that would rest in the teachings of Jesus alone. But he had this one disciple among the many who he really loved. And this one disciple was Timothy. And when they were apart, Paul would write letters to him to instruct his young disciple in the faith. And at the very end of his very first letter to Timothy, he ends it with this precious wisdom for a young man. Paul wants Timothy to have a full and abundant life, the life that this young man is looking for, that he's seeking. And so what does he say to him? Well, what wisdom would he give him? He talks to him about money and contentment. And so these words that we just heard in 1 Timothy 6 are the product of Paul's love of Jesus's teachings. <laughs> For Paul, there's no distance between his Bible and his life. Jesus says, be rich towards God. And Paul intends to help Timothy and us to do that. So how do we, how do we become rich towards God? So we're going to peek in on Paul's commentary or life application of Jesus's teaching. So being rich towards God begins with contentment. So this morning, we're going to study Paul's Jesus-sanctioned words on uh, words of advice to Timothy and, um, and this vision of money that he ha has. So he's, he's just, you know, kind of back up. He's teaching Timothy how to care for those who want to be wealthy and those who are wealthy. And so this goes through this idea of contentment. So we're going to look at it for you uh, sermon uh, note takers, four headings. We're going to work through this passage. We're going to first look at the source of contentment, then the dangers of discontentment, the practice of contentment, and then the economics of contentment. So those are our four headings. I'll move quickly through them. Let's begin with the source of contentment. So the first verse in our passage, verse six, says, look there, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So 
we, we need to get our brain around this. This money conversation has this inseparable relationship with contentment, not happiness, contentment. So, you know, what's the difference between the two? I, I looked it up in the Oxford English Dictionary. And happiness, it says this. It says, happiness is the pleasurable state of mind that comes with good fortune or good luck in life. In other words, it's like the attainment of something of what, what is deemed good. It's the happiness, the pleasurable state of mind that, that comes when you get what you want, all right? Now, contentment, though, is different. See, contentment is having desire bound by what one has, by what one has, though less than what one could have wished, not disturbed by the desire of anything more or anything different. So contentment is desire bound by what one has, not disturbed by the desire of anything more or anything different. Are you following this? So happiness finds satisfaction when you get what you want. Contentment finds satisfaction knowing that you have all that you need. In other words, contentment comes when your necessities are satisfied. So we must ask, what does Paul think we need? What does he think we need? Verse 8. If we have food and clothing, with these, we will be content, he says. And when Paul says food, by the way, he's not talking about like fine dining at Shanahan's, right? What Paul is describing is not poverty, but it is simplicity. And here's what's wild. The Apostle Paul assumes that in a room like ours, where we, have our, where we all have food and clothing, he assumes that all of us are content. Does that describe you? Are you satisfied by just food and clothing? Are you undisturbed by desire for anything more or anything different? Yeah, like, yeah, right, right? Like, do you feel the distance? Do you feel the distance between the Bible and our life? You know, contentment, as the Puritans would call it, is a rare jewel. I mean, how many times have you said, I just want to be happy. I just want my children to be happy. There is no happiness without contentment. And we care too much about stuff. We desire it too badly. And our stuff weighs us down. There's this guy, his name's Evagrius Ponticus. He's a fourth century monk from the ascetic tradition. So think about this, monk, fourth century, ascetic tradition. He says this, he says, a monk with many possessions is like a heavily laden boat that easily sinks in a sea storm. Just as a very leaky ship is submerged by each wave, so the person with many possessions is awash with its concerns. I would say it like this, mo money, mo problems. <laughs> but can you see why contentment is desirable above all else? Like we can stay buoyant with less. We, we can see clearly with less. We stop believing the false promises of, of money, of our possessions. And, and simplicity, simplicity is the key. 
another wise sage, Jim Carrey, Ace Ventura. He says, he says this, this is true. He says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so that they can see that it's not the answer. He's right. The source of contentment is very little. Food, clothing, namely just simplicity. Now Paul's discussion about contentment, verse six, moves very immediately towards those who want to be rich. And you see that in verse nine. So what, like, what's the connection between contentment or lack of and this desire to be rich? And this moves us to our second point. So we looked at the source of contentment. Now we're gonna look at the, the danger of discontentment. So Paul says, verse nine, look at there in your Bibles. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare. So this inordinate desire to be wealthy, that's what we call greed. Like the ancients would call it avarice, but it's just greed. And so you ask, well, at what point does a desire become an inordinate desire? Paul says, well, anything above food and clothing, anything beyond basic necessity is, is greed. Ouch. This is painful, even for the preacher. In that parable that I read earlier in Luke 12 that Jesus tells us, he says, you remember, he says, watch out, watch out for all forms of greed. Why does he say watch out? It's because we don't see it. Paul says, right, verse nine, that we fall into temptation. Like we're not aiming for it. We just fall. It, it becomes a snare. You know what a snare is? It's a trap to catch animals without them knowing that they're being caught. That's a snare. Greed catches us without us even knowing. It, it distorts our understanding of the world. Look at the text again, verse nine. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless, i.e. They're, they're losing their senses, they're, they're losing their perspective, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. The first thing that greed does is it makes us lose our perspective and we become senseless. I need a latte. I need a vacation. You don't know how hard I've worked. I need it. I need a smartphone. In Wall Street Journal, they published this finding. They said a third of Americans who make over $100,000, a third of Americans who make more than $100,000 agree with this statement. I can afford to buy everything I need. Are you following this? So two thirds of Americans who make at least $100,000 don't think that they have enough money to get what they need. Greed, the love of money, distorts our understanding of the world. Listen, like when we come across some money, it feels good for a while. It does, but it's fleeting. And all that really happens is we get the money and we reset the bar. And then we acquire more. Eventually we think, you know, I'll be happy when I make 
X per year. Like, X will be enough. Like, that'll be good. And then X comes and goes, and then we reset the bar. We set our sights on 2X, 5X, 10X, bigger barns. That's the way that it always works because you were not designed to find lasting joy in money or the things that money can buy. You were made to find happy. You were not made to find happiness in, in, in better ski passes or, or a, a remodeled kitchen. You know that very smart people wake up every single day with one goal in mind to persuade you that your life is not complete because you don't have the thing that they are selling. And they are better at their job than you give them credit for. Listen, no thing can make you whole. Why? Because you are too glorious to find lasting pleasure in earthly things. You're far too glorious. And listen, the dangers of discontentment, according to this passage, get even darker. Look at the second part. Go back to your Bible, second part of verse 9. Those who desire to be rich fall, and then it says, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Like in other words, greed leads you into other destructive evils. In fact, it's like the root of it. Like greed will get you to lie. Why? Because you want something bad, a lifestyle, a job. You know, you come to a test and you cheat because you think, I mean, I don't want to, but I have to. I really want this. And high school turns into undergrad. Undergrad turns into med school and then residency and then you're at job interviews and you lie. Why? Not because you feel great about it, because you really want this thing. And then you, then you lie on your taxes. Why? So that you can have a little bit more. It's greed. Greed leads to divorce. Number one reason for divorce, more than adultery, ladies and gentlemen, is money. Greed leads to murder. FBI crime statistics, arguments over money and property lead to more murders and homicides than burglary and domestic disputes combined. It's greed. But it's even darker than all of that. The second part of verse 10, look there, it says, it is through this craving. I love how he calls it a craving. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Greed will get you to leave the God you love. This sermon is not about stewardship. It's not about the church budget. It's about your heart. Greed gets you to look at wealth and possession, make it a rival God, and ask it for things that only God can provide. Real satisfaction, meaning, Worth, security. But here's the thing. With greed, with greed, it doesn't feel like you're turning away from God. It doesn't feel like that. That's why Paul is saying that they wandered away. It's, 
It's a slow drift. I and mean, we don't even know it. We don't even feel it. We didn't write the script like that. And what's at stake here is not your budget. It's not your bank account. It's not even your happiness, but your soul. And that's why it's so dangerous. That's the danger of discontentment. So how do we guard ourselves against greed? Well, Paul continues, and this is now our next point, the practice of contentment. What we find in these next few verses are now a way forward. What we find here is a path that shapes us in ways that God wants us to be shaped, right? These are ways that are best for us. So if you think about like vices, vices are habits that mold us in in the wrong way, right? They deform us. They don't form us, they deform us. But virtues are habits that help us to become what we are designed for, what we are made for. So contemplating our vices, contemplating our greed makes us realize that we're kind of on the wrong road, that we, that we have to make changes because we've been driving in the wrong direction for a very long time. So what is the road back? It's virtue. Let's consider these next few verses. Paul looks at his young disciple, Timothy, desperately caring for his soul. And he says this, verse 11. Look there. But as for you, O man of God, Flee these things, right? These material possessions that, right? These material possessions that, that you don't own. If anything, they own you, right? They dehumanize you. He says, he continues, he says, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made, made the, uh, the good confession, now, now stay with me because all of this fits together. Right? Keep your eyes on the Bible. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, right? Don't be arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now here's the thing that ties and brings all of these verses together. Kind of, it's the, it's the unspoken anchor of all of Paul's logic. And it comes from actually a different verse that he says very succinctly in a letter that he writes to his friends at the churches in in Corinth. He asks them, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? You know what the answer is? It's nothing. Everything we have has been given to us, has been richly provided to us by God. Now, listen, you guys, because I know This is a hardworking congregation. I know that you have worked hard for what you have. But who put breath in your lungs? Who who gave you the brain and the, the safe environment or the economy in which you can earn? Who decided that you would be born in this time, in this place, instead of like in the back hills of Latin America in a mining city in the 1800s. You're born here now. You didn't choose that. God is your provider. He is the owner. So don't be haughty. It is arrogant to treat your stuff as if it is yours. If you think that you are self-made, it will set you on a path and it will not end well for you. 
So let go of that stuff, flee from it. And what should you grab? What should you pursue instead? Verse 12, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, right? It is spiritual. You, you take hold of heaven in this life by practicing righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Practicing, embodying those virtues that form you are how you fight this good fight of faith. The good fight of faith is not apologetics. It's not good arguments on social media. The good fight of faith is believing in eternity to such a degree that it makes you let go of stuff in this life which produces a crop of faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, gentleness. These practices of contentment, though, will be neutralized if you think you are the owner of your stuff. So because I'm a good PCA pastor, here's my gratuitous C.S. Lewis quote. But I have to do it, Jeremy. I have to do it because it makes his point brilliantly he makes this point brilliantly in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this work, this particular book, is a, it's a compendium of like fictional letters written from like a more senior experienced demon. Uh, his name is Uncle Screwtape. And he's writing to his nephew, who is like an understudy or like a, 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 demon, a young demon in training, right? Wh whose name is Wormwood. So that's the framework. So in talking about this point, the demon, Uncle Screwtape, he says, the sense of ownership in general is always to be encouraged. The humans are always putting up claims to ownership, which sound equally funny in heaven and hell. So we must keep them doing so. And then Screwtape goes on to say, he says, much modern resistance to chastity comes from men's belief that they even own their own bodies. He says, we, the demons, we produce this sense of ownership, not only by pride, but by confusion. We teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my father, my master, to my God. They can be taught to reduce all of these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine in its fully possessive sense cannot be uttered by a human being about anything. In the long run, either our father, he means Satan, our father or the enemy, he means God, will say mine of each and everything that exists and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear, young worm, Wormwood, to who their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong, certainly not to them, whatever happens. At present, the enemy, God, says mine of everything on the pedantic legalistic ground that he made it. Our father, Satan, hopes in the end to say mine of all the things on the more realistic and dy dynamic grounds of conquest. <laughs> You see, the practice of contentment begins by letting go, not saying mine, but letting go of our stuff because it all belongs to God. And then we have to take hold, not of our stuff, but of eternity. Don't, 
set your heart on riches, set your heart, your hopes on eternity, and you practice these virtues every single day, you see. How are we doing? All right, let me quickly summarize what we've talked about, and then I'm going to conclude with my final point. So we've said that Paul, who is swimming in the teachings of Jesus, wants to care for the soul of his young disciple, Timothy. And the thing that could derail Timothy would be a lack of contentment. And why? Because where there is a lack of contentment, the soul can be deformed. And Jesus commands us to be rich towards God. And the generosity towards God that we're looking for can only begin when we are content with what he has provided. So we looked in our passage to learn about contentment. We looked at the, the source of contentment. We looked at the dangers of, of discontentment. And then lastly, the practice of contentment. So we've come to our final point, And this is the economics of contentment. Now, to understand uh, Paul's final portion of this text, you kind of have to get your brain around a Jewish mindset, the same mindset in which Paul was, was reared, right? You have to understand it within a Jewish worldview. You've got to remember, y'all, Paul was a good Jew, right? He wasn't a 20th century evangelical. Paul was a Jew whose Messiah came. That's how he understood himself. So when a Jew gave money, they understood it as it ultimately being a conduit to God himself. Like, like in other words, though the Jew was literally giving money to the priests or to the poor, theologically, he or she understood it as, being, as giving it to God himself, you see. And so throughout the Old Testament, God is sort of pictured almost like maybe a modern equivalent, like an investment banker, right? You give to God, he takes your funds, and then he gives them back to you with this spiritual return, uh, let me see if I can illustrate this. I don't know if you can relate to this, um, but for some of you can. Um, at my age, uh, you really begin to think about uh, your aging parents. Um, some of our aging parents, although they are very wise people, they've lived a lot of life, they are naive in some re really important, important ways, honestly. Um, I read this article on, it was, it was labeled, How I Lost My Parents to Facebook, for instance. This article basically describes how like a few years ago, a guy's parents get their first Facebook account. And at first, right, it's all about like seeing pictures of grandchildren and all that kind of stuff. But with time, the algorithm runs its course and the parents get sucked in headfirst naively into like QAnon and Christian nationalism and right-wing conspiracies. And in no time at all, their parents are like, there's this full-on addiction. Similar to how our adolescence get sucked in by social media, it's just as risky for the older generation. And because that older generation is thinking about like retirement plans and stuff like that, they are also susceptible to financial schemes. And so you'll, you probably have seen these. There are actually these commercials to protect naive aging parents from scammers who are trying to steal their retirement. The scammer promises, right? If you, in an email, a nice article that comes up on their algorithm, if you give me half your assets and your retirement, I will give you a 50% return on it for the rest of your life. Like we have to actually have to educate that generation. Like that's too good to be true. 
It's not true. It's a scam. But what a good Jew understood about God was the opposite, because God is not a scammer. What's interesting, different than these scammers, is God does not lose a penny of your investment. And knowing this, Paul says, look at verse 18 and 19. He says, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And then in verse 19, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life, right? The life that they're looking for. So to give your money away is to give to God, right? To store up treasures in heaven. And if you do, you will take hold of that which is truly life. Are you starting to see the economics of contentment? The call here is to be generous and to be ready to share. Share all that belongs to God. Sharing. The path forward is to give. Now listen carefully. If you've zoomed out, generosity is not a sign of contentment. Generosity is a means to contentment. Generosity is a means to contentment. That's why Paul says what he says to Timothy. This talk is not about the church budget, you guys. It's about your heart. It's about the life that you're looking for, true life. And like, this is so counterintuitive that most of you are suspicious of me even saying it from the sermon, in a sermon. But the, but the formula is simple. Give, save, and live on the rest. But for Christians, giving comes first. Where I would like to see everyone go, which where the pastor, the preacher, the Garcias, we practice ourselves. We give 10% to the local church, me too. And then we look on top of that to give more away. And this way, we're kind of loosening our grip on our stuff. We're spiritually taking hold of heaven as a family. We're, we're saying, hey, we need to work towards contentment. And it's not always easy, right? It's not always easy, but contentment is a rare, precious jewel. But listen, you guys, because I think about in our society and look around, how many of our children have been so hurt, not blessed, how many of our children have been so hurt by our wealth? I mean, it sounds drastic, but what if we never had a TV in our house because we couldn't afford it? What if we never had a smartphone? Our children never had a smartphone in their hands. How much would they have been healthier, more well-adjusted, less prone to depression, in deeper relationship with us instead of like, like seeking to be distanced from us? How has our wealth hurt our children? Paul's counsel to Timothy is about helping us to live a meaning, meaningfully in this life as we wait on the next. And so here's my action step, if I can be practical. Just do the math. Figure out like how much you even give. I mean, do you even know? I mean, I don't know. Do you even know how much you give? 
If it's less than 10%, then ask, you know, what would, what would it take to increase by 1%? Like, let, maybe that'll be a goal. What would it take to increase by 1%? And if you give over 10% or 10%, what would it, what it mean to give one more percent? You know, what would that, what would that look like? Start with just 1%. You'll find great joy and, pre- and freedom. And if you find, even as I preach this sermon, that greed has a grip on your heart, then you more than anyone needs to give, give more. <laughs> That's the antidote. I know there's a lot of distance between the Bible and our life. I know, I know. If this talk sounds uninspiring, if it rubs you wrong, or if it's just scary... Can I just leave you with one last thought? I want you to contemplate this. You know, Paul asks, right, what do you have that, that you did not receive? I mean, think of everything. Friendship, smiles, the warmth of the sun, that beautiful view of the mountains, food on our tables, the work that we have. But God has given us everything. I mean, creation itself is this overflow of God's generosity. And not only is God generous, but he gives in spite of our greed. Because <laughs> God is not like us. Remember back in the garden, if you could go back to like Genesis chapter 2 and 3 with Adam and Eve. Like what, what went wrong? You know the story. Like what went wrong? They took something that did not belong to them, that they thought was theirs. They were greedy, right? Isn't that what it was? They were greedy. They were not satisfied with the entire banquet of all of God's creation. They said, I need more. Like, I need this. I need this thing. And they took the fruit. They said, if I, I need this fruit, and if I can just have it, I will be happy. I need just a little bit more, and then, then I'll be satisfied. And it was a lie. And they stole from God. And how does God get back what is rightfully his? He gives more. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How does God get back when someone steals? He does not take it back. He gives. Because God is generous. He gives us even his son. God, y'all has provided us so, provided for us so richly in this age and in the age to come. Would you think and pray on these things. And let's like close the distance. Amen. Amen.